Good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studio right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is March the 30th, the 89th day of the year. 276 days remain to the year's over with. Well, this year is just flying by. The, um, this particular day, it has some interesting holidays. It's Doctor's Day. And as you get older, you see them more and more. Grass is always brown on the other side of the fence day. It's land day. We commemorate um, a lot of um, interesting things about land on this particular date. National Fitness Recovery Day. National Folding Laundry Day. National I'm in Control Day. National Julia Day. National Pencil Day. Do you know that one pencil can write up to 45,000 words before it wears out completely? National Victoria Day. National Virtual Vacation Day. National Wendy's Day. Ram Navami Day. <clears throat> it's um, <clears throat> Spiritual Baptist Liberation Day. Let's take a walk in the park day. Torrance day. Turkey neck soup day. That's almost as exciting as donut hole soup. World bipolar day. <clears throat> World TB303 appreciation day. And of course it is Women's History Month. All that having been said, in 598, was the Balkan campaign. The Avars lifted the siege of the Byzantine stronghold of Tunis. Leader Bayan I retreats north to Danube River after the Avaroslavic hordes are decimated by the plague. You know, interestingly enough, that disease has changed the course of history a number of times. 1282, the people of Sicily rebel against the Angevin King Charles I and what becomes known as the Sicilian Vespers. 1296, Edward I sacks Berwick upon Tweed during armed conflict between Scotland and England. 1699, Guru Gobind Singh establishes the Khalsa in uh, Anandpur Sahib, Punjab. 1815, Joaquin Murriott issues the Ramini Proclamation that would later inspire Italian unification. 1818, physicist Augustin Fresno reads a memoir on optical rotation to the French Academy of Sciences, reporting that when polarized, light is depolarized by a Fresno room. Its properties are preserved in any subsequent passage through an optically rotating crystal or liquid. And while he was applauded for his reading. Very few people understood what the hell he was talking about. 1822, the Florida Territories created in the U.S. 1841, the National Bank of Greece is founded in Athens. 1842, ether anesthesia is used for the first time in an operation by the American surgeon Dr. Crawford Long. 1844, one of the most important battles of the Dominican War of Independence from Haiti takes place near the city of Santiago de los Caballeros. 1855, origins of the American Civil War. Border ruffians from Missouri invade Kansas and force election of a pro-slavery legislature. 1856, the Treaty of Paris is signed, ending the Crimean War. 1861, discovery of the chemical elements. Sir William Crookes announces the discovery of thallium and energized an entire multiple generations of killers who used thallium for mysterious deaths. 1863, Danish prince Wilhelm George is chosen as King George of Greece. 1867, Alaska is purchased from Russia for $7.2 million, about two cents an acre, by the U.S. Secretary of State William Seward. It became known as Seward's Folly. That was before gold and oil was discovered there. 1870, Texas is readmitted to the U.S. 
um, Congress following the Reconstruction. 1885, the Battle of Kushka triggers the Panzda incident, which nearly gives rise to war between the Russian and British empires. 1899, German Society of Chemistry issues an invitation to other national scientific organizations to appoint delegates to the International Committee on Atomic Weights. 1900, archaeologists in Knossos, Crete, discover the first clay tablet with hieroglyphic writing in a script, later called Linear B. 1912, Sultan Abd al-Hafid signs the Treaty of Fez, making Morocco a French protectorate. 1918, beginning of the Bloody March events in Baku and other locations of Baku Governorate. 1939, the Hinkle HE-100 fighter sets a world airspeed record of 463 miles per hour. 1940, Second Sino-Japanese War. Japan declares Nanking capital of a new Chinese puppet government, nominally controlled by Wang Jingwei. 1944, World War II, Allied bombers conduct their most severe bombing run on Sofia, Bulgaria. Also on this date, 1944, out of 795 Lancasters, Halifaxes, and Mosquitoes sent to attack Nuremberg, 95 bombers don't come back, making it the largest RAF battle command loss of the war. 1945, World War II, Soviet forces invade Austria and capture Vienna. Polish and Soviet forces liberate Danzig. 1949, Cold War, a riot breaks out in Ostrovola Square in Reykjavik when Iceland joins NATO. 1959, Tenzing Gyasso, uh, the 14th Dalai Lama, flees Tibet for India. 1961, the single convention on narcotic drugs is signed in New York City. 1965, Vietnam War. Carbon explodes in front of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon, killing 22 and wounding 183 others. 1967, Delta Airlines Flight 9877 crashes at Louis Armstrong, New Orleans International Airport, kills 19. 1972, Vietnam War. The Easter Offensive begins after North Vietnamese forces cross into the demilitarized zone of South Vietnam. 1976, Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. And the first organized response against Israeli policies by a Palestinian collective since 1948, Palestinians create the first land day. 1979, Ari Naive, British member of parliament, is killed by a car bomb as he leaves the Palace of Westminster. Irish National Liberation Army claims responsibility. 1981, President Reagan is shot in the chest outside a Washington, D.C. hotel by John Hinckley, Jr., Three others are wounded in that same incident. And interestingly enough, um, George Bush, George H.W. Bush, I think, was having a, a meal with um, Hinckley's father or brother at the same time. Of course, nothing to be suspicious about. 1982, Space Shuttle Program, STS-3 missions completed with the landing of Columbia at White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. 2002, the 2002 Leon Car attack takes place. 2006, Cyclone Glenda, one of the strongest tropical cyclones in the Australian region, makes landfall near Oslo in Western Australia. <coughs> 2008, Drama Key, arrested by Chinese authorities. And for those who are not familiar with uh, Drama Key, is a famous popular Tibetan singer. Arrested March 30, 2008 by the Chinese during the period of 2008 uh, Tibetan unrest. At the end of the May, at the end of May of 2008, she was released after almost 2 months of detention on conditions of silence on her arrest and not going to do any more representation um representations uh during that period of time. And for a singer that can be a problem. 2009, 12 gunmen attacked the Manawan Police Academy in Lahore, Pakistan. 2011, Min Og Hang is appointed as a commander-in-chief of Myanmar's armed forces. 2017, SpaceX conducts the world's first reflight of an orbital-class rocket. Now, for those that uh, 
are a little puzzled about who SpaceX is. It's an American spacecraft manufacturer, launcher, and satellite communications corporation with its headquarters in Hawthorne, California. Founded in 2002 by Elon Musk with the stated goal of reducing space transportation costs to enable the colonization of Mars. They make the Falcon 8, the Falcon Heavy, and Starship launch vehicles, several rocket engines, Cargo Dragon, and Crew Dragon spacecraft, and the Starlink communication satellites. Luckily, they are not um, electric in nature, so you don't have to have a uh, tow truck standing by. 2018, Israeli army killed 17 Palestinians, wounded 1,400 in Gaza during Land Day protest. There was protest about the fact that the Palestinians claimed Israelis took the land from them. And in 2019, Pope Francis visited Morocco. Well, we were talking yesterday about um, what many call the suppressed history of America. You know, quite frankly, the history we're taught in school, and I've had history classes since I was probably 10. Um, what we're told has been doctored and approved by the powers that be. We're, when people talk about giants on this continent, they're laughed at. And yet, in some of the mounds in the Midwest, they found skeletons, 8 to 10 feet tall, 6 fingers, 6 toes, wearing copper armor. So somebody had a high level of sophistication to make copper armor. Let's talk about um, Hernando de Soto. 1539, he sailed nine ships into Tampa Bay. And as they ventured inland, they encountered the friendly Timucuan Indians. Now, it was customary for explorers to ensure their safety by holding captive the tribal chiefs of tribes they met. Now, this was done very diplomatically as an invitation. And the chiefs agreed. Now, when the natives realized becoming guests meant being turned into slaves, the Local tribes led by Chief Kapafi of the Appalachian rose up, and they fought back. After weeks of warfare, the chiefs were finally captured in a battle near what would become Tallahassee. And the records describe him as a man of monstrous proportions. Now, I talked about the fact that uh, Dwayne McCullough had done a lot more research into the legends of giants and the fountain of youth. And it turns out there's a basis to both. Now, nutrition salts are common in almost all briny lagoons in the Caribbean. And sulfur, when bonded into a metallic element, creates uh, salts such as calcium sulfate and sodium sulfate and potassium sulfate, which... Uh, are essential tissue salts found in any healthy body. And science has discovered that tissue salts and several other important salt compounds are uh, useful in maintaining proper health. If they're not supplied as part of our daily diet, the process of aging actually accelerates. Now, these elements don't oxidize at all. And when concentrated by the unique evaporation and flushing process of Florida Bay, they create a golden elixir that can neutralize the aging process if assimilated properly. Research by McCullough and others has helped revive a new interest in the so-called fountain of youth. Some historians speculate that early Spanish explorers may have been close to discovering these wondrous waters. Missed them in some instances by just a few miles. American magician David Copperfield claimed he discovered a true fountain of youth amid a cluster of four small islands in the Exuma chain of the Bahamas. He bought these islands for $50 million in 2006. In a telephone interview, he told Reuters, I've discovered a true phenomena. 
You can take dead leaves. They come in contact with that water, and they become full of life again. Bugs or insects that are near death come in contact with the water, and they fly away. It's an amazing thing. Copperfield, who's now 52, says that they hired scientists to conduct an examination of the mystical waters, but uh, he's not released any further information. Property development Michael Bowman bought an apartment complex in downtown Miami for $8.5 million in 1998. He planned to build a luxury condominium on the site. After tearing down the older apartments on the property, he was obliged to commission a routine archaeological survey of the site. And Bob Carr, the Miami-Dade Historic Preservation Division, was called in to conduct the excavation. And they discovered holes that had been cut into the limestone bedrock. Surveyor Ted Riggs, who examined the layout of these holes and theorized they were part of a circle 38 feet in diameter. Excavation of the path he laid out revealed that there were indeed 24 holes forming a perfect circle in the limestone. Examination of earth removed from the site led to the discovery of an array of artifacts ranging from shell tools and stone axe heads to human teeth and charcoal from man-made fires. The Miami Circle represents the only evidence of a prehistoric uh, permanent structure cut into the bedrock of the U.S. Signs of an ancient culture, civilization in the Americas predating Columbus's era and the native tribes are abundant even if they're cataloged incorrectly or just frankly ignored. Ponce de Leon, Cabeza de Vaca, and Hernando de Soto, whether looking for the Fountain of Youth or mapping the state of Florida, leaving it to be an island, opened the door for further exploration. That exploration unearthed the remains of a city in an earthwork complex, dubbed Big Mound, which is situated between the Florida Everglades and the, the Pitney Flatwoods. There's a whole lot more to this continent than the powers that be really want to talk about. Now, history talks about uh, Hernando de Soto's um, explorations, but it doesn't go into detail about some of the unusual people he encountered. In fact, his encounters with giants continued as he pushed further further inland in 1539. He had an expedition of more than 600 men and 200 horses. He rode through North Florida, Southern swamps of Georgia, and the landlocked crossroads of uh, western Alabama. Rodrigo Rangel, the DeSoto's private secretary, wrote a diary detailing uh, everything that happened on the expedition. And the new lands they explored were ruled by the Native American chief Tuscaloosa. Now, DeSoto with 15 soldiers entered the village, and as they rode in, they saw Tuscaloosa sitting on a high place, seated on a mat. And around him stood 100 of his noblemen, all dressed in richly covered sleeveless cloaks and feathers, according to Ranhell. Tuscaloosa appeared to be uh, about 40, and he was a giant, physically. His limbs and face were proportioned to the height of his body. And he was handsome, but more a look of ferocity and grandeur of spirit. He was the tallest and most handsomely shaped Indian they saw during all their travels, according to Ranhell. <coughs> now, the, the diary was first published in 1547, and it gave a concise account of failed peaceful negotiations and subsequent mayhem. As the cavaliers and officers of the camp who proceeded to Soto uh, rode forward and arranged themselves in his presence, Tuscaloosa ignored him. Made no move to rise even when DeSoto approached. According to Rand Hill, Tuscaloosa was seated on top of a mound at one end of the square in a position that befitted a king. And after a few days of talking and watching colorful word dances, Tuscaloosa joined DeSoto on their quest toward Mobile. And while on the trail, Two soldiers vanished. When DeSoto questioned Tuscaloosa about their whereabouts, he replied they were not the white man's keepers. Now, Ranhill then described the Spaniards' approach toward Mobile. Scouts rode out to DeSoto and warned him that many Native Americans had gathered for rebellion. 
DeSoto, of course, was brave and defiant and approached the town and its high walls. Welcome committee of painted warriors clad in robes of skins and headpieces with vibrantly colored feathers came out to meet him. A group of young Native American maidens followed, dancing and singing the music played on crude instruments. DeSoto entered the town with his most trusted soldiers, Tuscaloosa and the chief's entourage. Spaniards stood in a piazza surrounded by a stream of foreign colors and fluttering sounds, and from here DeSoto saw some 80 houses within the village. And several of them were described as being large enough to hold at least a thousand people. Now, this was a major settlement. Unknown to DeSoto, more than 2,000 Native American warriors stood in concealment behind the walls. After some of the chiefs from the town joined him, Tuscaloosa withdrew into the village, warning DeSoto with a severe look that he needed to leave at once. Well, under a hail of error, DeSoto and most of his men retreated from the village. After regrouping and devising their strategy, the Spaniards gained entry to the village, set fire to the buildings, and massacred the city's inhabitants. Now, despite the death and devastation, Tuscaloosa escaped. Riding deep into an unknown land, DeSoto and his men marched to to capture him, but the giant chief vanished, and the pursuing Spaniards found only abandoned cities with massive mounds. These staggering mounds remain standing throughout the south, especially in the Mississippi Valley. We're talking about a, a complex civilization that we've never heard anything about in our history classes. We're always told about how primitive everybody was before the arrival of the Spanish. <laughs> Professor Robert Silverberg, who's written about a lot of Native American history, made some comments. He said the Mississippi Mound Builders seemed to already have been declining when the Spaniards came along. Native Americans of the Southeast slid into a less ambitious way of life. Huge mounds were no longer built. Around the old mounds were the familiar festival and Rituals con uh, continued, but hollowly, as their meaning was forgotten, the village no longer knew it was their own great-great-grandfathers who'd built the mounds. All the Native Americans of the Temple Mound region had only faint and foggy notions of their own history. The Spaniards literally destroyed an entire civilization. Now, Silverberg suggested the mound stretched... So far back in the antiquity, they weren't built by the Native Americans. From Oklahoma to northern Georgia, explorations of these mounds have unearthed a variety of items, ranging from simple shells, ceramics, and pipe stones to extravagant ceremonial copper axes. Hundreds or maybe thousands of mounds were built in the Mississippi Delta. Radiocarbon dating has shown that the decline of the mound builders' population began more than 100 years before the Europeans arrived in the region. And what caused the decline and desertion of these people is still a mystery to this day. Now, during the time of the conquistadors, there was one group of southeastern Native Americans who appeared to be able to trace their heritage back far enough to include the mound builders. And these people were the Nutches, along with the Choctaw and Chickasaw tribes, were the primary travelers of the natural trail, which they shared with migrating bison, 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 deer, and other animals, and it became the more the route that Lewis and Clark made famous. Their empire stretched from the delta to the swamps of Louisiana, a stretch of land that Meriwether Lewis would become all too familiar with, and we knew from the writings of French uh, Jesuit de Pierre Clairvaux that the Natchez rebelled uh, unsuccessfully against the French in 1729. A few survivors became scattered among other southeastern tribes and looked upon as wide and gifted with mystical power. As did the ancient sages of the other tribes, the Natchez were, had legendary tales of invaders from a region on the other side of the world. And the Natchez described the mounds as the work of an earlier people. As the early exploration of America continued, there seemed to emerge mounting evidence of a civilization in the Americas that preceded the native encountered by early explorers. And the exploration for oddities such as a race of giants would require reversal of the long-established intellectual and religious dogma. 
Seems less a task to continue to accept the belief the Native Americans discovered by Christopher Columbus were the original mound builders. 1881, the Smithsonian began to actively promote that idea, which today has found its way into the federal government's Department of Education as part of the elementary school curriculum. It's not true, but it was accepted dogma. As a result, the Smithsonian has been charged with effectively withholding information that supports the theoretical framework known as cultural diffusion, which, as we've talked about is the simple and logical belief that uh, throughout history people interacted through uh, worldwide travels and trade. Now while the Smithsonian may have spent the better part of a century manipulating research and selectively sequestering native artifacts to support the theory that the Mississippi Mound Builders were an otherwise unremarkable tribe, growing evidence points to the contrary. During the 1800s the contents of many mounds were revealed to include the remains of huge men with estimated heights of seven or eight feet buried in full copper armor with swords and axes. And as settlers moved west, they came across and reported countless mounds. At the time, it wasn't unusual to find stories or articles in local newspapers about discoveries that the remains were perfectly proportioned giants. As land was cleared for settlement and agriculture, some suggested that these mounds and their Amazing contents were the product of ancient cultures that predated known native tribes. And tribes that greeted early pioneers told of a long extinct race of giants. Unfortunately, the powers that be weren't buying it. They wanted a perfectly logical uh, prehistory that didn't... uh, talk about any pre-existing civilizations. According to Ohio historian Ross Hamilton, first hint we had about the possible existence of an actual race of tall, strong, and intellectually sophisticated people was in researching old township and county records. And many of these were quoting from old diaries and letters that were combined for posterity in the 1800s from diaries going back into the 1700s. Now, some of these old ca- uh, county and regional history books contained uh, real gems because the people weren't subjected to a rigid, rigid indoctrination about evolution and were astonished about what they found and honestly reported it. So how did these bits of knowledge alluding to the existence of a prehistoric race in the Americas get excluded from public education? Well, you have to consider that prior to the establishment of the Federal Department of Education, the Smithsonian Institution looked upon as the guardian of the physical facts that help shape our culture, the culture of the new world. And at the time, Smithsonian and its political and scientific endeavors were an outgrowth to the federal politics of the early 1800s, most notably struggles to deal with the so-called Indian problem and struggles to justify the social cost of westward expansion. Now, government officials at the time of the Lewis and Clark expedition in 1804 considered the native occupation of the American continent to be the chief impediment to the creation of the New World. And while Thomas Jefferson is well known for being fascinated by and supportive of the so-called Indians, he also recognized they represented a threat to westward expansion. While Lewis and Clark were gathering information about native peoples and exploring potential trade routes west, Jefferson was developing a plan to get the natives out of the way. What would become later known by uh, the Indian Removal Plan. First component of his plan involved encouraging natives to adopt agricultural practices that would reduce their territorial hunting areas. He hoped then that government agents would be able to convince natives to sell their surplus land and literally get the hell out of the way. The second component was an amplification of the first involved encouraging natives to adopt a European-style agricultural economy in hopes it would become dependent on trade with European settlers. And that dependence, in turn, could be used as leverage against natives who resisted selling their land. And the third component of his plan involved establishing government trading posts near native settlements. He hoped, in this case, uh, that natives would be fooled into spending themselves into debt 
and that debt in turn could be forgiven in exchange for tribal lands, which would be appropriated by the federal government. Now, many tribes, including members of the Choctaw, the Creek, and the Cherokee tribes, willfully adopted European culture. They assimilated through thoroughly building schools and churches and creating government structures that resembled those of the U.S. But Jefferson and agents of the American government met with increasing reluctance from the other tribes. In 1803, the same year Louisiana Purchase was announced, and the same year that Lewis was chosen as the leader of the Western Expedition, Jefferson sent a letter to the then governor of the Indiana Territory, William Henry Harrison, outlining his plan for removing the remaining resistant natives. He said to promote this disposition to exchange lands, which they have to spare, and we want for necessities, which we have to spare, and they won't. We'll push our trading uses and be glad to see the good and influential individuals among them run into debt. Because we observe that when these debts get beyond what the individuals can pay, they become willing to lop them off by the succession of land. And this way our settlement will uh, gradually circumscribe and approach uh, the Indians and they will in time either incorporate with us as citizens of the U.S. or move beyond the Mississippi River. Well, the former certainly determination of their history most happy for themselves, but um, in the whole course of this, it's essential to to cultivate their love. As to their fear, we presume that our strength and their weakness is now so visible they must see we have only to shut our hand to crush them and that all our liberalities to them uh, proceed from motives of pure humanity only. And should any tribe be foolhardy enough to take up the hatchet at any time, the, seizing the whole uh, country of that tribe and driving them across the Mississippi and as the only condition of peace will be an example to others and a furtherance of our final consolidation. Well, this letter that came to light outlines the last part of Jefferson's grand design, which included a notion that they become known as land exchange. And this involved trading tribal land in the eastern portion of the continent for land west of the Mississippi, what was then known as the Louisiana Territory, but soon became known as the Louisiana Purchase, Later on, this practice had become the conceptual foundations for the Indian Removal Act of 1830. Now, Jefferson declared his intention to use the Louisiana Territory as a dumping ground for displaced natives uh, in a letter to John C. Breckinridge in the summer of 1803. And although Jefferson had been a vocal proponent of natives' nobility, intelligence, and equality for decades, his philosophical perspectives were seemingly trumped by his political ambitions and pervasive Eurocentric myopia. It was these same political ambitions that encouraged Jefferson to send Lewis West both as an emissary and as a scout. And it also follows that Lewis's appointment as governor of the Louisiana Territory was at least in part granted because Lewis had spent years studying and negotiating with native tribes. So he was well suited for overseeing the task of relocating tribes to their new homes in Louisiana. And as a seasoned naturalist, he was also well-suited for overseeing the various tribes' training in European-style agricultural practices. Now, Jefferson's move to civilize the natives out of their land and some of the scientific theories he ascribed to would later evolve into a doctrine known as a progressive social evolutionary theory taken up by John Wesley Powell. It went on to create... Um, exert great influence over U.S. public uh, policy as head of several government agencies. Now, Powell began to exert real influence beginning in 1879 when he was named director of the Smithsonian Institute's Bureau of American um, Ethnology, which he also helped to create. Now, like Jefferson and other enlightened predecessors, Powell held seemingly contradictory beliefs about the native peoples of America. He'd been an ardent defender of the native people, lived and worked among them, worked tirelessly to preserve their culture and their lands. And it was this pursuit that led Powell to, to lobby Congress to change the way federal agencies dealt with land acquisition. In the process, he laid the groundwork for the creation of the United States Geological Survey and the Smithsonian Institute's Bureau of American Ethnology. And this monumental task and consolidated a number of government agencies that were previously under the control of the U.S. Department of Interior. 
And it also created a phenomenal political power base for Powell and his associates in the scientific community. 1879, work begun by Jefferson and Lewis, including the study of native cultures and efforts to assimilate seemingly beloved natives into Euro-American culture become an official government mandate. Powell is now at the helm of the Bureau of American Ethnology, a member of the House Appropriations Committee and strongly willed, uh, strongly allied with the National Academy of Sciences. He'd grown from being a man in the field to being a man of the establishment, and given his new status, he went along with the mandate. Now, like Jefferson, Powell made countless moral concessions in order to be able to continue his work, and these concessions included modifying or ultimately coming clean about his philosophical and scientific prejudices. Put simply, Powell was at heart and at the end of the day, a racist. He believed that natives, while fascinating in their own right, were inherently inferior to Europeans. And this belief, championed by the emerging science uh, of ethnology and later anthropology, became a pseudo-scientific and philosophical justification for the decimation of native tribes, the plundering of natural resources, and the ever-growing list of horrific consequences of Western expansion begun by Jefferson and Lewis. Just as Good, hard-working Americans become royalty when they get elected to public office. Powell's pretty much the same way. Lee Baker, professor of cultural anthropology and African-American studies at Duke University, said uh, industrializing America needed to explain the calamities created by unbridled westward overseas and industrial expansion. Now, although expansion created wealth and prosperity for some, it contributed to conditions that fostered rampant child labor, infectious disease, and desperate poverty. And as well, this period saw a sharp increase in lynchings and decimation of Native American lives and land. The daily experiment of experience of squalid conditions and sheer terror, terror made many Americans realize the contradictions between industrial capitalism and democratic ideals of equality, freedom, and justice for all. And professional anthropology emerged in the midst of this crisis, and the people used anthropology to justify racism in turn provided the institutional uh, foundations uh, for the field. Basically, what it came down to is manifest destiny, which was this country from sea to shining sea, justified whatever had to be done to achieve that. An attack written for American Anthropology in 1888, titled From Barbarism to Civilization, Powell made his views about natives and so-called Indian problems very clear. In setting forth the evolution of barbarism to civilization becomes necessary to confine the exposition to one great stock of people, the Aryan race. Now, where have you heard that term before? Well... This particular view that Native and African-American races were inherently inferior to Europeans became institutionalized thanks to Powell and his allies, including Powell's mentor, ethnologist, lawyer, senator, and railroad baron, Lewis Henry Morgan, financial lord and museum magnate uh, George Foster Peabody. You know, a large number of, of um, what became household names supported Powell and his endeavors. Well, it's interesting to note that people's justifications of their actions, no matter how um, inappropriate these actions might be, uh, were accepted. Now, Thomas Jefferson was known to have in his personal library the most accurate and complete collection of books and maps categorizing the West. His father, Peter Jefferson, was a skilled cartographer and surveyor. In Virginia, surveyors enjoyed prominent status and had plenty of opportunity to become landowners as well. And anybody who wanted to obtain title to an area of land had to deal with the surveyor. And in many cases, the surveyor's knowledge of the land would garner him employment representing large land companies. Surveyors are also among the best educated Virginians, and it wasn't unusual for them to acquire large estates from the 
opportunities afforded by their profession. Before 1755, the land west of the Allegheny Mountains had not been settled. Land ownership in Virginia was necessary for the settlement of the area and for the growing prosperity of the colonial planters. The colonies were thriving, and the assurance of western expansion depended largely on the incentive of land ownership. The expansion west wasn't just expected, it was being carefully laid out. People settling in what was known then as the Northern Neck required to obtain a survey warrant from the Northern Neck Proprietary. Northern Neck's where my family settled um, after Jamestown. In fact, they, the family plantation is still there, known as Wicomico View. Uh, the uh, proprietary office uh, arranged for a set amount of acreage in a specific location. The survey warrant issued directly from the office to the county surveyor instructed the surveyor to make a just and true survey of the land officially determining and limiting its boundaries. 1749, Peter Jefferson founded the Loyal Land Company of Virginia along with another fellow Virginian and close neighbor, Thomas Merriweather. That was Lewis, his grandfather. The Loyal Land Company was formed to petition <coughs> for grants of land west of the Allegheny Mountains. In addition to Peter Jefferson and Thomas Merriweather, the Loyal Land Company included other members and families of high influence, magnates, and large landowners. Now, the Loyal Land Company of Virginia got 800,000 acres in 1749. And they had plans to fund expeditions west in 1753, just four years after forming the company. The quest, unfortunately, had to be abandoned indefinitely when the French and Indian War broke out. Peter Jefferson never realized his dream of exploring the west. He died on the family ranch and left his large estate to his 14-year-old son, Thomas. Well, immediately after his father's death, Jefferson began attending what was considered the finest school in Albemarle County, Virginia, under the tutelage of Reverend James Morey. Morey was known in the area as a great teacher of classic education, such as morals and manners, history, literature, mathematics, and geography, which he considered essential to the education of a well-rounded young man. His clergyman also promoted settling the West, and most of the boys attending that school boarded there because it was too far to come and go each day from home. Consequently, strong friendships were formed, and many of the young men educated by Reverend Morey had gone to become great personages in the molding of this new country. Thomas Jefferson lived with the minister and his family for two years, and the influence Maury had on the young Jefferson is evident in the latter's passion for geography and the exploration of the West. It was a passion Jefferson maintained even as his political career evolved steadily from governor to vice president to president. And it is worth noting that another future president, James Madison, had been a pupil of Reverend Maury. Well, in 1784, Jefferson introduced to Congress an ordinance that allowed new states to be formed from western territories. Much of Jefferson's excitement about possible trade routes and passages west rested on maps of the American continent produced by early French explorers. And it is important to note that maps of America were based almost entirely on conjecture and stemmed from pseudo-scientific theories that were equal parts analysis and wishful thinking. Jefferson subscribed to one of these theories known as the symmetrical geography, which suggested that the territory, uh, topography of Western American continent mirrored the eastern half, literally that mountains and rivers and waterways of the eastern and western portions of America were identical, or at least remarkably similar. That theory included a belief in the so-called Long River that was thought to comprise a series of interlocking lakes and rivers that would uh, provide a water route west. The Long River legend was later replaced by a belief in two rivers running east and west that converged to create a waterway that would be able to carry explorers to the Pacific Ocean. Well, in a time when most of the population lived within 40 miles of the Atlantic Ocean, Congress disapproved of allowing uh, newly discovered lands to be given status equal to that of the original states. Well, undeterred, of course, Jefferson helped sponsor the French botanist uh, André uh, Michel to hopes of finding the quickest route to the Pacific Ocean. This expedition collapsed in Mississippi, near the Mississippi, suffering from political conspiracies and paranoia. The French, the Spanish, and Native Americans were fighting uh, westward expansion, but Jefferson pressed on with a steady resolve. 
He had a number of interests and was endlessly studying, never resting, knowing that Great Britain or any other nation could claim the land and the, on the soil he and his Revolutionary War brethren fought to protect. In the beginning of 1801, with the help of the American Philosophical Society, an institution for knowledge created by Benjamin Franklin, Jefferson finally took the first real steps westward. He chose his private secretary and personal protege, Meriwether Lewis, to lead an expedition. Lewis was sent to Philadelphia, where he personally studied under some of the sharpest minds of his time. Preparation called for an intense review of botany and mathematics and chemistry and anatomy and medicine. And it's not difficult to imagine Lewis readying himself for this important mission, comparing himself to the with the Spanish conquistadors, stockpiling rifles and ammunition and securing the proper in- instruments and equipment. Well, the, the taking and collecting of notes on newly discovered plants and animals and minerals was of great importance, as was disciplined documentation of all the discoveries in journals. Lewis is well prepared for the task and had a strong personal bond to Jefferson. Both came from the same neighborhood in Virginia and were pioneering sorts of... Uh, Distinguished families. Jefferson practically watched Lewis grow up. Born on the family farm on August 18, 1774, Meriwether Lewis had lived just miles from Jefferson's Monticello. Lewis was born to parents of high prominence in central Virginia. Jefferson had uh, two siblings that uh, married into the Lewis family, and Meriwether's uncle had uh, Handled Jefferson's relations, handled Jefferson's relations during his years of diplomatic service in Paris. Meriwether was five. His father died of pneumonia. His mother remarried, moving the entire family south of Georgia. It was during that time that Lewis developed his skills as a tracker, herb gatherer, and outdoorsman. I think at night, along with his dogs, the ten-year-old Lewis developed a lifelong passion for the earth's natural wonders. It was in Georgia Lewis had his first encounter with the Cherokees. And even as a curious young boy, Lewis was sensitive to the plight of the natives. Certainly he um, had concern that their culture was being destroyed. When Meriwether returned to Virginia in his early teens to be educated, when he finished his formal schooling, he opted to return to the family farm rather than continue on to college. Well, his plan was to spend time expanding his land and growing his own flora and herbs, but unfortunately it was short-lived. Trouble brewed as new taxes on whiskey caused farmers to rebel and riots spread across the colonies. During August of 1794, President Washington mobilized 13,000 militiamen for Virginia, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Maryland. Lewis, who was worried about uh, the safety of his land, quickly enlisted. Well, the, the Whiskey Revolt was uneventful and quickly suppressed. Lewis, though, had found some excitement in the promise of travel and decided to remain with the Army. He served under General Wayne during the Battle of Fallen Timbers and arrived after the slaughter just in time for the signing of the Treaty of Greenville. Landmark Treaty was a success for the Western Confederacy, but a sad loss for the Native Americans who uh, turned over Ohio, the future side of downtown Chicago and Fort Detroit. During his military campaign, Lewis met William Clark for the first time, and the two immediately formed a a deep connection. Now, Lewis was the consummate adventurer, curious, strong, smart, artistically inclined, and fearless. He was as comfortable in battle as he was in the laboratory or in the library or even in the field. At heart, he was a soldier and an adventurer, but he spent so much time in the company of learned men like Jefferson, his rough edges had been somewhat refined. Lewis was also known for mood swings and occasional fits of melancholy. Sounds like PTSD to me. Well, an interesting news just came in. New York grand jury just indicted Donald Trump. He was indicted for his role in paying hush money to a porn star, according to four people with knowledge of the matter. Now, this is going to shake up the 2024 presidential race and forever mark him as the nation's first former president to face criminal charges. 
Of course, I think this thesaurus-funded DA is going to uh, have a lot of um, feedback he's not going to be happy with. And since when does paying a prostitute become a criminal act? Since he didn't make the payment. And I wouldn't trust anything that Cohen said. As someone once said to me, how do you know when a lawyer's lying? His lips are moving. All right. Well, by various biographers, Lewis was um, described as uh, sensitive, brash, self-aware, poetic, driven, depressed, fearless, and easily angered. He was also characterized by as hard to get along with and seemed to have held many of the racist tendencies that characterized men of his day. His treatment of Sacagawea, for example, is often described as condescending and dismissive. She was the Native American who actually led the expedition for much of its uh, trip. Clark, on the other hand, was born in Virginia, the ninth of ten children from English and Scottish ancestry. And unlike the Lewis family, the Clarks didn't have a single drop of aristocratic, aristocratic blood. And with the most children of his era, Clark was homeschooled. He was shy, he was awkward and self-conscious, preferred reading books to socializing. Fifteen, his family moved to Kentucky, where Clark ultimately would break out of his shell. Learning uh, wilderness survival tactics, began to prepare for his inevitable calling. Clark had five older brothers, all with hard military experience, and he understood he'd have to follow in his brother's footsteps to gain respect which was not an easy task considering that one of his brothers was a general during the American Revolutionary War. Well, Clark's childhood home was a battlefield under constant uh, raids by the, the Wea natives. 19-year-old William Clark began his military career by volunteering to help push tribes out of Kentucky in order to secure the Ohio River. Kentucky militia made no effort to distinguish between warring and peaceful tribes, a point made clear by the the attack on the peaceful Shawnee, appalled by the murder of women and children, Clark uh, detailed these horrors in his journal. In rising up the ranks of lieutenant, he proved to be a good soldier, showing his unmatched expertise in mapping and tracking new lands while commanding troops and winning battles. He was actually praised for his leadership. But after seven years, the harshness and nonstop conflicts took their toll, and Clark uh, prematurely retired. He said his health was poor. And on that note, we're not at time. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about uh, Clark's relationship with his friend Meriwether Lewis. But what you'll find is much of the history we have been taught is not true. So, on that note, We'll be back tomorrow, and once again, you'll be listening to The Ken Hudnall and The Ken Hudnall Show. Until then, have a truly great evening.